This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Lee Chang, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 476 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Scott Edelman. He's the author of the novel The Gift, and he's also published over 100 short stories, which have been collected in books such as What Will Come After and Things That Never Happened. He's also worked as an editor for Marvel Comics, Science Fiction Age, and the Sci-Fi Channel, and he's the host of the science fiction podcast Eating the Fantastic. And we'll be speaking with him today about his short story collection Tell Me Like You've Done Before, which pays tribute to some of his favorite writers. And now here's our interview with Scott Edelman. All right, so we're here with Scott Edelman. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Okay, so I just read your collection Tell Me Like You've Done Before. So how'd this book come about? It was actually an accidental collection. I had never expected to do it. There came a point in time where I had published so many stories. I think I'm up to 102 stories. My 102nd just came out that I realized I had written many stories that were homages or takeoffs or sequels to the author's stories I loved. And there were enough of them. And I happened to be at ReaderCon one day talking to Steve Berman, who is the publisher of this press, uh, Lethe Press, and I said to him, gee, you know, someday I might attempt to pull this together and see if it makes sense as a collection. Tell me like you've done before. The title story is based on Of Mice and Men, and I can tell you a little bit more about that story. And the, the minute I dropped this concept, Steve said, that's a wonderful idea for a collection. Pull it together and make the list, and let's see what actually exists. And I had enough stories, I feel, that have made for a good collection to honor all the people who inspired me. And the subtitle of that collection is And Other Stories Written on the Shoulders of Giants, because it's really part of this great continuum of fantasy and science fiction and horror. So tell me about the cover, because the cover is really striking. Well, the artist whose uh, last name I hope I am pronouncing correctly because we uh, have not actually met uh, Matthew Sophie, Matthew John Sophie, S-O-F-F-E-E, is a wonderful characterist, and he did portraits of many of the people who were in this book who inspired me. Ray Bradbury, Thornton Wilder, Shakespeare, Rod Serling, H.G. Wells, Edgar Allan Poe, Ernest Hemingway, and Raymond Carver are the ones that made the cover, but there are many other people who inspired me as well. Uh, you know, Shel Silverstein and uh, you know, so many other uh, Joanna Russ. Uh, I'm I say not well. Joanna Russ is one of the people who inspired me. I mentioned more in the afterward than actually the stories represent. Uh, but James Tipton Jr. Uh, Alice Sheldon was one of the ones uh, whose stories inspired me uh, to write one of the stories in this book. And it's basically uh, those 
caricatures were put together uh, with a hand pulling away a curtain, and you can see the the heads of all of the writers who inspired me over the years, or at least the ones contained within this book. Uh-huh. So did they tell you that, did you um, know that that's what the cover was going to look like? Did they just kind of spring it on you or did you uh, talk to them about it? There was some back and forth and we had many different uh, suggestions. Uh, we were talking at one point about, if you remember the kind of covers that the great Leo and Diane Dillon did, where it would be made up of various objects that made a larger face. And then we thought, oh, maybe we could do that. And uh, Steve found this wonderful artist, Matthew John Sophie, to whom I'm apologizing if the if it's a long E or a short E, who does these wonderful drawings. And I went to the guy's website, examined his artwork, uh, fell in love with it. And I said, that sounds absolutely perfect to capture all these and make sure there are enough of them on the cover to know it's not any one single artist, one single writer represented in the book, you wouldn't want someone to think, oh, it's all Ray Bradbury inspired stories or uh, it's all Rod Serling Twilight Zone stories, but to know it's an amalgam of everything that helped make me who I am over the years. And this represents, I guess, um, 10% of the fiction, I've, maybe 10 to 15% of the stories that I've written, but there's enough of them that have made sense to do a collection such as this one. Mm-hmm. So do you remember how you got started doing these homages? Because one of the story, speaking of Twilight Zone, the story of Fifth Dimension looks like it goes back to 1983. So you've been at this a while. That might be my first story written that is a deliberate homage. Of course, if you go back far enough, I began my writing career in comic books. And I guess at one point, everything I wrote was an homage to Stan Lee because I was trying to hmm. be the guy who, when I was a kid, uh, writing I love. But when it came to working on the, the text fiction, this idea just came to me uh, for the story that ended up being published in The Twilight Zone. And uh, the odd thing about it is that even though I learned that I worked only a couple of blocks from the office where The Twilight Zone uh, editor worked, I refused to see him all the stories I sent back and forth and got rejected. You think some other writer might have said uh, to the editor, hey, why don't we have lunch and you can tell me what's really wrong with my stories. But (laughs) instead, in my head, I decided I'm not going to see this guy. This is a story called Fifth Dimension, and it posits that uh, I wrote Twilight Zone magazine, which at the time was publishing an episode guide to the Twilight Zone, and I was writing saying, gee, you left out this episode and that episode and this wonderful episode and the the editor says, gee, the, those are not really episodes. I think you're making things up. And it was just a back and forth. And it ends up that on my TV is picking up uh, stories from the fifth dimension that Rod Serling is still off somewhere making all sorts of other uh, wonderful episodes. And the great thing about this story is that the editor, Ted Klein, had to run it by Carol Serling, Rod Serling's uh, widow because, well, once you're including something like that in a magazine that they're doing with the permission of the Serling estate, you want to make sure his widow is pleased with it and honored by it. And the fact that Carol Serling said, oh, no, I love this story. It treats Rod Serling in such a wonderful way. Go ahead and use it. it made me very happy. <laughs> I mean, you said that you well, you explained in the book that you never wanted to meet the editors because you were afraid that you wanted your work to stand on its own uh, and not not have them be charmed by your uh, personality. Well, whether it, whether I would have charmed them or not, I don't know. But I was very anal about it, and I had many rules for myself that I followed. 
because I did want an editor to only buy it based on the words on the page. I don't want them to say, oh, Scott made a funny joke at that party. I saw them at it. I would really resist meeting editors. I was being very foolish about one's career because in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter whether you become friends with an editor or not friends with an editor. I've been rejected by some of my closest friends, and I've had stories purchased by people I know who did not necessarily like me as a human being, uh, but those editors had ethics and standards, and all they cared about is what it's going to convey to a reader. So I basically told people, look, don't do what I did. If you feel that you can meet someone at a party and not have them hate you, you know, don't uh, drink too much and then throw up on their shoes so they go and say, boy, I don't ever want to see anything by that guy. Uh, there's no harm in that. But I, I had all sorts of rules that I followed. I remember once at a World Fantasy Con, someone said, hey, you want to meet uh, uh, the uh, publisher? You want to meet Jim Bain? And I said, nope, nope. I, I might submit something to them someday. And I, so that a lot of my early conventions were like that. <laughs> It was funny. I understand where you're coming from because I had exactly the same thing when I was, you know, when I was a young teenager, probably 14 or something. My mom said, oh, like one of her friends was friends with this editor. Did I want to meet him? And it's like, no, no, for, for exactly the reason you say. And then years later, I, I was like, what was the name of that editor? And she's like, oh, it was uh, Gordon Van Gelder. <laughs> and I was like, ah. Oh. And that the thing is, you, you, you know Gordon would not have purchased a substandard story. So the thing that you feared, that I feared, would not have occurred that, oh, they're going to buy a bad story just because they know me or they like me. And that is not what happens. So it's not really what happens. So all these people who think there's a secret cabal and friends are only buying stories from their friends and things like that, that isn't actually what's going on. And if I'd known that, 30 years ago, I might have had more fun at some parties that I chose not to go to back in the early days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, looking back on it, um, there was no danger of Gordon buying a story from me when I was a teenager. That was uh, definitely not something I needed yeah. to be concerned about. Um, nor, nor my early stories, many of which have since been destroyed. I destroyed my first 25 short stories so they would not damage the world in the event of my death. Not that anyone is hungering to publish every story I write while I'm alive, but <laughs> there came a point when I said, oh, these early stories have to go. I saved my very first short story out of nostalgia because I said, okay, well, the one I wrote when I was 16, I'm just hanging on to that one to look back on and laugh. But story number 20, number two through 26 they're all gone. Somewhere I have a bullet point list of what the plot was, one sentence for each one, but I don't want anyone to read those. Well, so talk about the title. Tell me like you've done before. What does that mean? It seemed like a perfect title to the book. It is the title of one of the stories in the book, one of the fastest stories I've ever written. I am a slow writer. They grow very slow like coral. Tell me like you've done before for people who are familiar with Of Mice and Men, the John Steinbeck classic with uh you know the lumbering lenny and his friend george and they go around working on farms and bailing hay and everything was a story i wrote for a zombie anthology in which i posited that lenny i i hate to give a spoiler for <laughs> of mice and men if anyone has not read of mice and men does not want to know how of mice and men ends fast forward a minute or two but at the end of of mice <laughs> and men george must kill his friend 
Lenny uh, because he knows what horrible things will happen to Lenny because of some of the things Lenny in his ignorance and lumberingness has done. And I have posited that uh, actually when George shoots Lenny through the head, he sort of misses and then uh, Lenny comes back as a zombie and is coming after George throughout the the story now tell me like you've done before is a line that lenny in their lives would always say to george tell me about the rabbits again oh we're gonna buy a farm we're not just gonna be farm hands we're gonna have this wonderful thing tell me like you've done before tell me that story about the rabbits how we're gonna be our own men and everything and live off the fat of the land and it occurred to me as i was looking at the stories in this book that tell me like you've done before for an anthology that has retellings of stories that you might have heard before is absolutely perfect. And the publisher agreed. And that's how it ended up being that story. I did feel I wanted to include that subhead about and other stories written on the shoulders of giants. So people would understand the whole concept of the book. Do you remember exactly like that idea of the zombie of mice and men? Do you remember how that came to you? Like, were you how far into your zombie phase were you at this point? Oh, I was quite a ways into my zombie phase by that point. I mean, I've been writing zombie stories for decades. I mean, one of the other stories in the book, which is Shakespearean zombie story, sort of Romeo and Juliet meets Night of the Living Dead, called The Plague on Both Your Houses, was written, oh, I think at least a, a decade, if not longer before. And this one just all of a sudden came to me as an, of course, of course, this is the perfect. This is one of these stories. And when I say I write stories slowly, I to me four or five hundred words a day is a magnificent day. And I do a lot of rewriting, a lot of polishing, and this entire story came out of me in a weekend. And it reminded me of that story where a guy's uh, car stops on the road. The repairman comes and fixes the thing in about a minute for. Uh, and charges them $50. It's $50 for a minute, and the mechanic says, no, not for a minute. The, the, the $50 is for the 30 years I learned how to do this stuff. The minute is free. And that's <laughs> the way I felt about this story. I played Lenny and the Mice and Men. It was a magnificent experience to do that. It is something that I saw uh, of Mice and Men, a TV version or movie version as a kid, and it's always been an extremely powerful story to me. And the idea just came and burbled out of me. Uh, I knew every single thing that was going to happen, which is very rare because I am a pantser, not a plotter. So I normally start not knowing where I'm heading, but this one was boom. And I guess I had to write it that quickly because when I, once I know the ending, I can get bored. So there are stories I know the ending to that I don't write, but this one came out of me in an explosion over the course of a weekend and uh, people people seemed to like it and it ended up being the title of the book. Yeah. And also, I really want to recommend the, the story you just mentioned, A Plague on Both Your Houses. And it's written in iambic pentameter and everything. I actually, last night, I read it out loud to my girlfriend, and she uh, she really liked it, too. So definitely well, recommend to, that one. Well, to, to carry back to something else you said about Gordon Van Gelder, the mention of Gordon Van Gelder, this story was read aloud at a World Horror Convention. Actually, I'm sorry, it was not a World Horror Convention. It was probably a Bram Stoker Awards weekend because at that time, uh, the Horror Rise Association held their own events. And it was nominated for a Stoker Award. 
And Stoker Award nominees normally do a reading. And since this has all these characters in it, I decided I, I can't do this. I can't do a reading. And I dragged friends of mine on stage uh, to read the various parts so we could pull it off. So uh, Mike Morano, Ed Bryant was in there, Gordon Van Gelder, Nina Kariki Hoffman, all these people helped perform the play. And I wish we'd recorded it and we did not. But Gordon uh, ended up doing a marvelous job, particularly since there's a line in there about uh, using the sword. And if I had a pen, I would edit you or something like that. I can't <laughs> remember the line off the top of my head, but it's just so perfect that that line ended up coming out of his mouth at the time. He was not yet the publisher of FNSF. He was the editor. But that's a story that came about because when I go to conventions, I am filled with energy. I was driving home from uh, World Car Convention in Nashville, and all of a sudden, the opening lines came to me, and I just thought, yep, Night of the Living Dead and Romeo and Juliet were a kid of a zombie and the kid of a human end up falling in love and all the various things that happen and grave diggers and nurses and switcheroos and sword fights. And it was a lot of fun uh, to write. And oddly, it was one of, even though it was my first Stoker nomination, it was one of my hardest stories to sell. I shouldn't say oddly because, you know, it's a play, a five-act play with a prologue and <laughs> an afterlog and, and it's dynamic pentameter. So yeah, I guess it's not that odd that it would be difficult to sell but uh, i was very proud that it got me my first of eight Bram stoker award nominations well you say one editor rejected it because he's like i'm just not that into shakespeare that was hilarious because i thought i've last i have found the perfect home someone was doing a zombie anthology and i thought oh this is absolutely perfect and i sent it in and the response was oh i don't like shakespeare <laughs> so it had nothing to do with the story or whether I pulled it off well or whether there was poetry in the language. It was just, eh, we don't like Shakespeare. So the story itself was secondary to this person's distaste for Shakespeare. I ended up, in fact, giving up attempting to have it published professionally, and I put it together as a Halloween card one year, and I sent it to all of my friends. And based on that, it ended up get, being published in the Stephen Jones Best New Horror of the Year. And based on that publication, it ended up getting nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. So stories have strange paths to publication and recognition. So I always tell people, do not worry if it takes a while for things to you know, find the right audience. And you know, Steve Jones ended up being the right audience. And then my fellow horror writers ended up liking it. So I was very proud of that. Is that intimidating, sort of inviting comparisons bef between your yourself as a writer and Shakespeare or Steinbeck or, you know, all these, these sort of great authors? I don't think it has ever been a fear. It certainly takes a lot of chutzpah, but doesn't writing itself take a lot of chutzpah? To think that anybody gives a damn about anything <laughs> that you have to say and put forward into the world is um, is a lot of ego to that. So I don't think that i ever worried that someone was going to read you know my sequel to the giving tree my imagination of that and say oh my goodness this is not written as well as shell silverstein <laughs> or or certainly uh you know when i did the you know the sequel the the dual sequel to uh you know, the james tiptree uh stories to to multiple uh james tiptree stories you know the women men don't see 
and it's just you know a magnificent story and you think uh you know no one could possibly uh top that and yet i, I imagine it does take a lot of uh chutzpah again to that and the screw five solution two stories i read and reread often uh luckily no one has ever come back to me and said who do you think you are <laughs> in any of these and uh I, i'm not quite sure what I would say, other than, well, these stories are to say thank you. They were not attempting to equal or top these people I admire so much. It's sort of, you know, something I did in my head to, to say thank you to these wonderful people. Same thing for Ray Bradbury, who I was lucky enough, uh, you know, to meet several times. Most recently, uh, it's not that it's a little bit ago, but it was at the San Diego Comic Con. So I'm just glad to be able to say thank you to the people who came before and helped mold me. Do you do you just when you're channeling the voice of another author? Do you just sort of do that intuitively, or do you have any process where you like, I don't know, copy out a page of their writing or read it out loud or, or anything like that? Well, I find that the writing of other people is very infectious, and you sometimes hear other writers say that, "Oh, I can't read other people while I'm working on a story. I have to do not do no reading while a story is going on." I'm not quite like that that is why i had to leave comics when i was writing comics i worked for marvel and i realized that my fiction was starting to sound like stan lee all the alliteration was <laughs> appearing in my regular fiction so i learned a long time ago that i am susceptible to other people's styles and cadences so for instance with the title story i did reread the, all of of mice and men before sitting down to write the story it's it's a short book i you know i did reread the giving tree shakespeare is fairly easy didn't have to reread anything of that i think from schooling and just from being alive shakespeare is so in all of our bones that we don't necessarily have to do that uh and some of the things in terms of rereading i've loved them Always, when I think of um, you know Thorn Wilder and you know being in love with Thorn Wilder and uh, you know well, of mice and men is the same thing, but being in love with Our Town, I've seen Our Town so many times. Both of mice and men and Our Town leave me in tears at the end, so I did not have to even go back and read reread Our Town except when it came time for a title because I wanted the title of that story to be a quote from the story. And I had to refresh myself, which of many sentences worked best. And that one is called live people don't understand, which is from one of my favorite scenes uh, in our town. And uh, so that's about as much as I, I have done. And, and uh, because writing is just so infectious. So I do have yeah, the story I'm working on now, which is not inspired by anyone. I am not reading any fiction while I am working on this Short story, I'm only reading nonfiction, a book of essays by Chip Delaney. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about this story, What We Still Talk About, which uh, I was just blown away by. I was blown away by. I think it's a spectacular story. Thank and it's, you. Um, you know, it's written in the mode of Raymond Carver, but it's this sort of far, fumer, far future post-human science fiction story. So in terms of subject matter, it's very different from what people might expect. Yes, and that's an interesting thing or an odd thing about the collection because so many collections people put out, you try to have a singular concept. Oh, all of my horror stories go in this book. All the zombie stories go in this book. All the science fiction stories go in this book. But the fact that, tell me like you've done before, the central conceit is the homage. It means I have gathered science fiction and horror and fantasy and 
bittersweet fantasy or bittersweet horror. So there's a, a mix of uh, flavors here beyond what any of my other collections are. But, uh, you know, this one basically takes my favorite Raymond Carver story, what we talk about when we talk about love, and imagines it in a post-human future when we can basically do anything and one person decides for reasons which become obvious in the story gee why don't we go back to earth again and see where everything began and uh you know you have a character who is just uh you know sort of exists in the mist and is everywhere and is all around us and uh uh you know characters who can change their size characters who uh, exist in multiple versions of themselves with a shared consciousness. And it's about what happens to them when they go back to Earth and talking about love in the future, what we talk about. We talk about love and, uh, you know, the, this one is talking about uh, what we still talk about. And I do love Raymond Carver. And I attempted to, as in Raymond Carver's story, which is about uh, two couples and, dealing with the relationship and their love or lack of love or boredom with love. Or uh, I, I sort of posited that way into the future as uh, we return to the earth that used to be, which I, without, without giving too many spoilers, it, it, it's there and it's not there. And, uh, you know, they have so much superhuman powers that uh, they can basically do whatever they want. Uh, but in the end, they're, they're still human. So I, I, I'm pleased that you were, you were pleased with it. Yeah. And it's, it's just such an interesting dovetailing of these ideas of the, the characters feeling this pointlessness on an ennui in this Raymond Carver story with the, the far future post humans who feel everything is pointless because they can do anything. And so nothing really, there are no stakes really for anything. And it was just interesting how those two sort of themes dovetail. Yeah. Science fiction has come up with that a lot. There are so many stories we've seen where we think being immortal will be wonderful. And then we realize, Oh, life is not wonderful unless we're not immortal and things have more meaning because we could lose them at any moment. That's not really necessarily what this story is about, but it, comes down to all the things we think might be solutions are necessarily solutions because in the end you are still left with yourself no matter how strong or powerful or magical you become mm -hmm. i thought I, I didn't know this in the note you say that raymond carver actually started out writing some science fiction stories and kind of gave them up at some point none of which exist raymond carver uh, was an alcoholic had a very sad life until uh, his second wife uh, he got together with and somehow he ended up becoming, becoming sober with that relationship. But there are an awful lot of his early life. He was basically tossed drunk out of apartments and all his possessions on the front lawn. And he did start out writing a lot of science fiction stories. And when I saw that quote, I actually, I edited science fiction age magazine and I suggested to Barry Malzberg that, Hey, did you realize this? Why don't you write a science fiction story as if it had been written uh, by Raymond Carver, uh, which he did, and it was published in Science Fiction Age uh, uh, a, a long time ago. But I would kill to actually read one of the stories that Raymond Carver wrote that was intended to be a science fiction story. And we, and we don't know why he no longer cared about science fiction. His first wife said, oh, you know, eventually he was no longer interested in writing about little green monsters, but was it that he couldn't sell them and he said, oh, this is stupid? Or was it that he decided he got into uh, uh, John Gardner's 
writing class that he just decided was beneath him. We don't really know what his relationship was, but it would be wonderful to go back and find some of those. And it's not necessarily that I wrote saying uh, specifically that I'm going to write a science fiction story that that he would have written. It just seemed like a perfect uh, match. This was a, this particular story came about because Peter Crowther was doing an anthology uh, Forbidden Planets, and it seemed to fit in perfectly. So it's it's inspired by, but it's not as before. It's not attempting to be him. So hopefully, no one will say, "Well, it's not as good as what we talk <laughs> about." When we talk about love. Because, yes, that's true for ninety nine point nine percent of the other stories written on this planet. So was that Barry Malsberg story that you had him write? Was that sort of did it come out kind of how you had imagined, or was it a lot different than you than what you expected? I don't think there's anyone else on the planet better suited to pretend to be writing a Raymond Carver science fiction story than Barry Malzberg. I think he did exactly the job that I I wanted to be. I I knew Barry loved Raymond Carver as much as I do, if not more. We both looked at the unedited manuscripts because Raymond Carver had been heavily edited by Gordon Lish. And there's a lot of controversial stuff over whether Gordon Lish did too much editing in places, but I knew that Barry would do a wonderful uh, job on it. Unfortunately, I can't remember the title of Barry's story uh, at the moment, but I imagine if you just sort of Google Barry Malzberg science fiction age, Raymond Carver will turn up. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because you, you, when you mentioned science fiction age, I did want to ask you about that because, uh, you know, I first met you at the Clarion Workshop in 1999. I was a student and you were one of the guests. 22 and years that, ago. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, at that time you were editing science fiction age. And I was realizing that I don't really know that whole story of how, like, how did you become the editor of science fiction age? It was an accident. So much in my life happens due to serendipity rather than through deliberate conscious action. My wife had been looking for a job, looked in the Washington Post, and there was an ad there under editor for looking for part-time editor to edit science fiction magazine. And I said, wow, I can do that. I edited other magazines in the past. My career started as an editor at Marvel Comics. And I wrote them probably the most obnoxious letter anyone ever wrote to attempt to get a job because I felt that I had a certain, I don't know, status in the field as doing things of quality. And there are many, you know, not very good science fiction magazines or science fiction magazines that uh, mistreat the field, mistreat the writers and artists uh, that they use. And I basically said the, the question isn't whether you would hire me. The question is whether I would work for you for this <laughs> edit this magazine. And that must have impressed them enough. I explained some of the other things I had done and I, that I basically know everyone who they might want to have published and so on. They called me in for uh, an interview and it was one of the weirdest meetings that I ever had. It's a couple of guys who, had previously published Civil War and Military History magazines, and their whole concept for publishing a magazine is they wanted to have 20,000 subscribers before they produced a single issue of the magazine. I'd never heard of such a thing. I'm not into the direct mail, and I was not into the direct mail thing. And they basically, when they interviewed with me, said, okay, we're going to hire you to put together a mailing, and if we get a certain percentage return on this mailing, we will go ahead and do 
the magazine. I said, that's really very bizarre. Uh, I mean, but basically to back up, one of the reasons I got the job is when they hired me, that mailing had to go out three months from when we were having the conversation because evidently, and I don't remember the specific dates, but something like December 27th or December 23rd is the best time to send out a direct mailing to anyone to get a good response. And the second best date is a date in May. I don't know why. Maybe one is, oh, everyone has Christmas gift money and they can subscribe to things they're in a good mood. And I realized, how in the world are they going to do this in three months? And overnight, I put together a proposal, said, look, if you really want to do this, at that point, we just had an interview. I said, if you really want to do this, you have to start doing it now. There is no way you can hit your mailing date. I'm giving you this much for free. This is what I think you have to do in order to pull this off. And I guess based on that, they were impressed and they hired me and they did the mass mailing. And the science of mass mailings was so precise that after only mailing 20,000 of them and getting, I forget what they get. They did get like a 3% response, which is better than most people. They then mailed on on, on that May date, 400,000 of them. And they told me exactly when they would have, uh, was it 20,000 or 25,000 subscriptions? And they were right within a day. So there is a science based on examining the stats of the small mailing. They knew exactly when they get that. And then we had science fiction age for, for uh, eight and a half years. And I'm so pleased with what we're able to do. Two writers I published, one Nebula Awards, Martha Sukup the first year and uh, Mary Tazillo at the end. And it was just a wonderful wild ride and, and a bizarre one because who thinks of, oh, I'm not publishing a magazine, I'm publishing a mass mailing and maybe we'll do a magazine. So I had to buy stories that where the writer knew, here's a kill fee, I'm paying you this much money to use your name that your story is coming and if we publish a story, you'll get the other half. And it ended up working for a nice long time and the first issue uh, had 175,000 copies out there. So, uh, you know, for the first year or two, it was a top-selling magazine, short only of something like Omni that was selling millions. But uh, I could talk to you for far longer than you would want to hear when the <laughs> magazine was finally canceled. I actually did a one-hour talk on exactly how this came to be, why it succeeded, and then why it eventually ended up dying, which was supposedly recorded at a convention, but I've never been able to track down uh, the recording when I was a guest of honor at Ad Astra because it would be wonderful to have the contemporaneous explanation of this bizarre story of how these guys do this. And uh, yeah, when I met them, they had 10 Civil War magazines with circulations over 100,000 on each one, not Civil War, military history, variety of military history magazines. So they know what they're doing and they know how to find niches, and I was glad to have been a part of it for that period of time. Yeah, I, I would love to hear that uh, recording if that ever turns up, because, yeah, because Science Fiction Age, it did have production values vastly in excess of, of most other science fiction magazines. You know, it was all full-color, glossy pages, all these ads and beautiful artwork and all this stuff, and I, I, always, I always wondered how. I mean, I know Omni had sort of money from... This is my understanding, Bob Guccione and, and Penthouse Magazine behind it. So I guess there was there was some some large resources behind behind these this publisher for Science Fiction Age as well. 
Well, it wasn't just large resources. And just to give you just a quick explanation, most science fiction magazines fail, I believe, because one person attempts to do everything, meaning the editor says, I can sell ads. I can deal with (laughs) distributors. I can do all these things. And one person normally does not have all of those talents. And so, therefore, I've seen a lot of them you know, attempt to do that and fail. But in this case, one of the reasons it succeeded is I dealt with the editorial, a guy named Carl Nam at the beginning, he dealt with all the art and design and Mark Hintz dealt with all the business side of it. And we each kept our own piece of turf and we were each good at our own piece of turf. And we were attempting our best not to intrude on what the other person was doing. We give advice, of course, but it, it worked because you did not have one person, uh, trying to run everything and it also goes back to a joke you probably heard which is about publishing is you know you know how do you make a million dollars in publishing hmm. it's well start with two million yeah so i have seen certain science fiction magazines that are small attempt to get big there's magazines you know science fiction review that i love that i think that we're selling eight to ten thousand and they said now we want to try and sell fifty thousand and they rushed more copies out there. And it, it's very difficult to go from small to big. It's easier, it's <laughs> easier to either start big and get small or to be unknown and wow people. And they allow you to filter out through the bookshops and the newsstands and it'll allow it to be quite big uh, for quite a while. But uh, there's, there's a whole science to this, but it was a beautiful magazine. They were calling it. We were basically the tagline was sort of, for us thinking, okay, the rolling stone of science fiction that we're trying to be uh, at that level. I mean, it's been like, um, you know, it's been a tough time for print magazines the past few decades. Do you feel like the, the demise of science fiction age was kind of just part of that? Or do you feel like there were, was there, was there sort of an, a parallel timeline in which science fiction age is still, still going? Well, it was time for one magazine to go. I think and ended up, unfortunately, being science fiction age. I know at time we were thinking that, okay, if we can outlast Asimov, let's say, <laughs> and, and then we would get their readers or they would get our readers or something like that. It just it didn't seem with the – as newsstands were shrinking, there were fewer uh, you know, newsstands to hold the magazines. Uh, it was more difficult to find the casual reader. And the other old rule is what happens is, let's say a bookstore puts out 10 copies of a magazine and only sells nine. Then next time they should only give us nine. Well, then they'll sell eight and it'll, it'll shrink and shrink and shrink when you always have to leave something there. If, if you don't have an issue left on the newsstand, you haven't printed enough copies to find that new reader. So, you know, and, and without it's the death of advertising. Also, once car ads and cigarette ads, those don't come in unless you get to you know half a million copies, which uh, no science fiction magazine other than Omni uh, has ever gotten to. And and when Analog tried that when in the '60s, when they went from digest size to large size, thinking they would get car and and uh, cigarette ads, and that really didn't happen. They eventually shrunk back down. But this is a, probably a lot more inside baseball. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it pretty is amazing. And you know, we, we hope that the science fiction magazines will continue. Luckily, we have all the the online magazines that have leapt into the fray, you know, Lightspeed and Clark's World and, and so many of the other wonderful magazines, Uncanny and Strange Horizons and Fire. But I mean, there's such a healthy 
online presence now for science fiction and so many wonderful things which are only appearing uh, online. And today, if I were to start a magazine over, I would definitely go for the online model rather than attempting to do a paper one. Maybe I'd put together a best of paper Kickstarter anthology sometime at the end. But but I'm not doing that now. I'm having more fun writing the stories because it's very difficult to do both. Often many editors, we've lost many editors. I mean, think of the great Gardner Dozois when he took over editing uh, Asimov. He was always a slow writer to begin with, but it's tough to read as I did. I was reading uh, about 800 short stories a month and still publish uh, fiction as well. So um, one can only do so much in one's life. Well, I did want to ask you, one of your one of your stories was published in the Journal of Pulse Pounding Narratives. And in your author's note, you say that when, it only lasted for two issues. And the message from the editors was, quote, it is our fondest wish that if there are young people out there who dream of running a zine, they will see the path of misery and despair that we have so foolishly trodden and turn another way. And, and it is true. And that was a wonderful magazine. And I love that magazine. And I love the fact that I got to publish the extremely bizarre story there, which uh, is called This is Where the Title Goes, which is published in this little zine. And yet I have had so many people tell me that they were teaching this story to students. Most recently, Nalo Hopkinson, who was teaching a clarion class this year, this semester, said, do you mind if I teach this one to the students this year? But both John Castle and John Crowley in the university level have taught this particular story, which I feel owes its birth to people like Italo Calvino and uh, Manuel Puig, we can sort of think of Italo Calvino as a fantasy writer, though I know some would say, oh, no, he's just a literary writer, and uh, Manuel uh, Puig. Uh, and this was this story of mine is the skeleton of a story as opposed to the crunchy candy outside coating of a story. I tried to tell a story that was the skeleton of all stories. And uh, ideally, it would have been published anonymously because instead of a title, what it says at the beginning is this is where the title goes and it should have been published as by byline <laughs> rather than than having an actual uh, person but it's basically describing the purpose to the story of each sense in the story and uh, hopefully managing to be entertaining in its own right and i i am st- i was stunned the first time someone said do you mind if i teach this uh, in a class, I, I'll just read you the first sentence or two just to give people an idea because they might be saying, what the heck is he talking about? But the way it begins is, this opening sentence is supposed to make you stop breathing. This next sentence is supposed to allow you to start again, even as you forget you're holding a book or magazine. This third sentence you read is supposed to make you forget the act of reading as if the words were your life instead of your dream. And hopefully people don't think that's too precious, but it continues on and actually tells a story while telling the underpinnings of all fiction at the same time. And I'm so glad that that odd little zine that warned people not to publish odd little zines was willing to publish it and that people seem to get a kick out of it. That that doesn't surprise me at all that people have taught that in in writing classes and things because that's exactly what I was thinking when I was reading it is you know it seems like a, a good thing to assign uh, in a setting like that 
and it it makes me i, I guess i I'm, I'm extremely proud of that i don't know whether any of that's the only time anyone has at least come to me and told me they wanted to teach that story and particularly three people who i so admire john castle john crowley and al hopkinson of all uh, said do you mind if i teach this both in a clarion class and at the university level so i'm i am thrilled by it and I have read that out loud. It's one of the ones that uh, I get choked up when I read. I don't know if that has happened to you, if you've done a reading ever where you realize as it's reaching its conclusion, you become so gravid with emotion that you choke up a little bit. And this is one of those that uh, that does that to me, and as does the one that's inspired by Shel Silverstein. And sometimes you don't know until you read it aloud. You can write a story and realize it's powerful and be moved by it. But there's something about the act of speech that requires a different level of control. And if you are overwhelmed by emotion, your voice just chokes down and you can't get the words out. And uh, there there have occasionally been stories that I've read at conventions where I, I have had to pause and apologize to the audience before uh, going on that I was so moved. You know, they say comedians aren't supposed to laugh at their own jokes. I guess writers <laughs> should not. I mean, if you're an actor, you're not supposed to start crying at the sad part unless, <laughs> unless you're meant to be crying. So the audience is supposed to feel that. But uh, occasionally a story has done that to me while reading it aloud. Well, that that definitely happens to me, but I, I get choked up pretty easily. Actually, when I was I was describing to my girlfriend, I was describing your Of Mice and Men story. And so I was like, okay, well, first I have to describe the plot of, of Mice and Men. And just giving the plot synopsis, I was getting choked up when I came to the end of just, you know, what happened, telling her what happens in Of Mice and Men. So, yeah. Oh, well, that one and definitely the Our Town story, which turns out to be uh, Live People Don't Understand, which is another zombie story. Hopefully that people don't think there are too many zombies. And it's not all zombies, mm-hmm. folks. Uh, but there's a scene in of in Our Town where a deceased person is given the chance to go back and for one day and see what life is like because the dead sort of die, but they have to sort of wither away a bit. They still are conscious. And then eventually they become one with the universe. And uh, the stage manager who is a character in this uh, place, said, don't just pick a, an average day. Don't go back to anything fancy. Don't go back and look at your birthday or you know the day you got married, just a normal day. And uh, she comes back. I'm going to get choked up just talking about it. But uh, And she basically looks at this average normal day and sees how beautiful and magnificent it is and said, don't they see how wonderful life is? And she's told, well, live people don't understand. They, they, they don't see the beauty in just the ordinary. And when I read this story and get to the end, which I will not give away, no, no spoilers here, <laughs> but uh, that's one that I get very choked up because the play itself chokes me up that whole last scene that that's set in a in a cemetery as the dead are speaking to each other as they prepare to sort of uh, calcify and you know become one with the universe and with the eternal uh so yeah that's another one when i read that one aloud i am i am moved by and i have to prepare myself i have to there is someone i have to say even as i'm reading it okay that part is coming now (laughs) (laughs) slow down take a breath you know, let let the emotion pass over. I, I imagine it's the same thing that happens when you're about to have a tough conversation with a spouse or a parent. Then you know, okay, I don't want to cry during this because if I cry, I won't get my message across. But sometimes I, I still do. 
Yeah. Well, getting back to the idea of teaching for a second, I did want to ask you about your story, The Trembling Living Wire, and just how that came about. That was one of those stories that come about uh, because I heard that there was an anthology opening. Uh, sometimes I managed to rise to the occasion of writing a story. It's not a story to order. It's basically a prompt. You hear out there, oh, an editor is doing uh, you know, an anthology about cats. And was, I never did one of those. I don't know why I went to cats. That, I think that's the cliche, the cat anthology. But I had heard that uh, Ellen Datlow was doing an Edgar Allan Poe anthology. And when it comes to Edgar Allan Poe, there are many obvious Edgar Allan Poe stories that would be taken by people if you're going to write a sequel. Uh, the Trembling Living Wire is a line in Edgar Allan Poe's poem, Israfel, and it got me thinking about um, the music of the spheres and angels and, and sound and uh and I don't necessarily think it's the story about writing or teaching, but uh, this is one that came about because, you know, Ellen Dadlow, who I respect as an editor, was doing this anthology. She ended up passing on that story just to let people know, just keep writing those stories. doesn't matter who ends <laughs> up uh, rejecting them. And I ended up selling it to a Stephen Jones <laughs> anthology uh, that was not written specifically for, but he was doing an anthology about serial killers of the Bob Block psycho sort, and I ended up selling it to him. But uh, it is basically uh, about, well, I don't know whether to describe the poem or whether to describe the story, but the character of Israfel, uh, you know, despised an unimpassioned song is a quote, and I don't know whether people uh, reading it how long it would take them to pick up on the reference to the post story. And that's sort of a sort of a side tangent. I imagine I should put in, I do not believe knowledge of the original stories that I am inspired by, or the authors who inspired me is necessary to enjoy the stories themselves. I feel that's very important. You can't uh, tell people, well, yes, you have to go get a doctoral degree in this other author before you like this story. It has to, <laughs> It has to stand on its own. If you know it, yes, there are Easter eggs and there are resonances that will come out that won't occur to the uninitiated, but I feel it it, uh, truly doesn't matter. So for this particular story, I was meditating on the poem and meditating on what the character in the poem might have gone on beyond the poem to experience. And then I therefore imagine that character uh, you know, living in uh, to our world and our present, and uh, becoming a, uh, a a music teacher in the school, and what happens there, and how this person judges the voices of the students, and uh, what the character does in order to make those voices achieve uh, the passion or emotion that he must feed upon uh, in order to find his own. Uh, joy. So that's yeah. sort of a veiled way of describing what the story uh, is well, about. Well, I, I do want to describe the the premise because I mean, you, you you see this in the first page or two, right? Is that this this person causes tragedies for his students surreptitiously in order order to kind of like be a, what do you call it a character building uh, so that they uh, uh, it, it deepens their artistic talents. And I just think that's an interesting Yes, as far idea. as this person is concerned. Now, of course, as authors, 
you and I, both authors, know that uh, there is the myth of the tortured, tragic writer artist and many non-writers non-artists want to believe that we all must be troubled souls and that's why we can write these things that writing comes out of pain and despair and the way of the world crushing down on us and it might be that certain individual stories might come about because of that when you are filled with pain or anger or something like that but it is uh, false that it is a necessary thing uh, in the real world for uh, you know a writer to have a miserable life <laughs> or experience great tragedy in order to create great art. But yes, but the, in this particular situation, the, uh, the character hears this flavor in the voices of the children uh, that the character teaches that they do their best to help bring about by causing certain things to happen to them. And, and, uh, and what happens later, you can find out by reading the story. <laughs> But so the story wasn't inspired in any way by your experiences teaching at Clarion or anything like that? Oh, no, no. There was nothing. No. Don't don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I was not uh, sneaking around behind the class, letting air out of people's tires or, or, or <laughs> killing their pets or doing anything like that. No, I'm trying to think. Have I ever written anything directly result of that? No. And, yeah, and so often people like I know my brother once said, oh, there's a particular story that there's a grandparent in this short story therefore this is obviously inspired by one of our grandparents like no no uh the same way actors act that they may use stanislavskian methods to call upon an emotion you know there's not a one-to-one ratio when you're writing about a teacher that that means it came out of your experiences being a teacher nor out of your experiences being an axe murderer or a serial killer that (laughs) some of these things must rely on our imagination i mean teaching clarion was a wonderful uh wonderful experience but no i don't think i've ever written anything that i could say is directly based upon being a teacher other than the fact all of the writing that i do is part of being this community of science fiction folks my first convention i went to when i was 15 years old going to a comic book convention so i've lived in this field so you could sort of say Everything is of the same piece. Everything, my, the life that I live and the stories that I write and the people who I see when I go to conventions or deal with online, it's all this big circular community that I love. So that may be the only way that it is somehow everything is connected to teaching. Maybe only the way all writing is. I'm, you're writing because you want to say something to somebody. That's not necessarily teaching in the formal way that we think of teaching, but it is attempting to communicate something that you feel about life yeah all right so we're running a little short on time and i did just want to mention i mean you mentioned that this book that we're talking about uh tell me like you've done before has stories that are horror and science fiction and everything all mixed together but for people who uh who want their horror separate from their science fiction and stuff i'll, I'll just mention that you have you have a collection called what we still talk about which i think is all science fiction right yes and that includes a story that you gave me such plot it's about. I'm so pleased you like it. That's all the science fiction. That's where you go if you want to find the robots and artificial intelligences and deep space and far futures. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did, it did make, definitely make me uh, curious to read more of your, you know, far future science fiction. So I, I will probably track down that collection. And then you have um, uh, 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 one that's all, all the zombie stories called What Will Come After. And then you have a more recent one called Things That Never Happened, which I think is more sort of fantasy horror. 
That is dark fantasy. Yes, things that never happen is all you know, Twilight Zone, eerie stories. It's it's staying away from the uh, zombie stories. It's for people who are familiar with horror. If they like Dennis Etchison, Charlie Grant, those people we think of as the quiet horror, Ramsey Campbell, the folks who, uh oh, it's not that I'm sickened because someone's headaches is exploding. It's that the hair on the back of my neck is rising up and I'm feeling real creepy and eerie reading this story. It's that the the fiction of discomfort as opposed to the fiction of gore. That's what you get in that one. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just all these different flavors of, of Scott Edelman collections, depending on your, your taste. And tell me like it done before is really the tutti frutti. <laughs> it's the everything bagel of Scott Edelman. that you, yeah. you know, you get some horror, some science fiction, some of all the different flavors because of its theme. Yeah. And then I also just want to mention that you do your own podcast called Eating the Fantastic. So you want to just tell people about that? Well, I was once called the Anthony Bourdain of science fiction because when I go to a science fiction convention, I research the town the convention is in deeply because I do not want to waste any time on a hotel meal. And I would abscond with other guests and go to all these great restaurants around the town. And when it came time to be on a podcast, well, I was a guest on a podcast. And I suddenly realized, wait, you mean the workers can own the means of production? I can do a podcast <laughs> and just put it out there and Apple will distribute it to everyone? And I thought, well, what should my niche be? Because I didn't just want to be another podcast. So I said, I will go out for meals with people. I will record those meals. You are coming along with me and eavesdropping on this conversation I have with various folks. And I've been doing that for five years uh, now, more than five years. The 149th episode just went live last week. Uh, with John Wiswell, this year's Best Short Story winner of a Nebula Award. And it has been uh, a lot of fun capturing uh, the voices of people, hopefully in a more casual way. My feeling was often in a studio, people are aware there are microphones. And when there's food in front of them at a table, maybe they freak. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're we're being interviewed here. Right? <laughs> it's, this is being recorded. And, and the food that makes people relax and forget and that's what I wanted to do, this casual, informal discovery of uh, of who the writers I admire are. They're not just writers, agents, uh, editors, all sorts of folks. Yeah. And so, like, were you – I guess the, the pandemic kind of um, made it tough for a while to do that format, right? I was going to go on hold, and only my Patreon people convinced me not to do it. They liked the conversation so much that they said, well, wait a second. You can both get – the same takeout. Why don't you both get Chinese <laughs> food and, and do it online? And why don't you both bake? So uh, it allowed me to, there's a writer in Germany named Steve Toast. We both had Wiener Schnitzel while we had a conversation. Uh, Farah Mendelssohn, we baked scones and then we each ate our own scones while we had a conversation. So it led to uh, you know, some interesting conversations. Obviously, there are some challenges to the interview process, as you have surely learned over the years, meaning uh, you know, if I'm having a conversation across the table from you, I won't step on your toes because I could tell by your raised eyebrow or about, your mouth is opening that you're about to speak again. And it, it's easier to trample on one another's uh, thoughts because you don't know if the other person is done, uh, you know, and so on. But uh, I've been able to do quite a few conversations that way. I finally just returned to uh, the real world again uh the most recent episode i recorded where i think people you may have had on the show there are three local writers all of whom published their second novels sarah pinsker 
K.M. Spara and Karen Osborne all published their second novels within three months of each other. And I thought that must be captured. So I got donuts. We had some <laughs> Greek food and we sat down about the joy and challenges of gee, you had an entire lifetime to write the first novel and you had a year to turn in the second novel. <laughs> what, you know, what is that pressure like? So that will probably be episode uh, you know, 151, but I'm finally now with that we're getting vaccinated and we feel safe together, have returned to that, and it has been wonderful. Yeah, so I mean, so if you, you know, if you listen to this podcast and there are any authors that, you know, you wish that I had interviewed that I haven't yet, you know, go check out Eating the Fantastic and maybe you'll find them uh, on Scott's list. And that's one of the wonderful things. Unfortunately, we just learned today, as of the time of this recording, the great writer William F. Nolan passed away. Most people would know him as a co-writer of Logan's Run. And I did an episode with him four years ago when he was a mere 89 years old discussing his life and the fact that those who did not know how wonderful he was can listen to 90 minutes of me and him chatting about him knowing Ray Bradbury and all other things and talking about knowing Rod Serling writing for the Twilight Zone. That's sort of one of the reasons why we do this. We want people to learn to like and love the people we like and love and the fact that they can live on. It was very bittersweet listening to some of, uh, of Bill's voice today, but knowing that, hey, you can still go out. He passed at 93, so he had a wonderful long life. You can still go out and learn more about him. And it felt like a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's so great. I mean, I was telling you a little bit over messaging that, you know, um, you know, my favorite author growing up was Roger Selassie, and I've looked and looked and looked, and I found on YouTube there's one video of him giving a reading, and one time when someone, a friend, gave me a CD with an audio interview, and that's that's all that I've been able to find. Um, so just I think this this current, you know, this current age that we're in, where you can, yeah, you can go on on online and find, you know, thousands of authors, you know, hour long, two hour long interviews. Uh, I just think is is going to be such a great thing for people in the future to to be able to find out more about about yeah. some of their favorite authors. And I'm trying to do people not just at the peak of their career in their 80s and 90s. I, there were so many people I've done at the very beginning of their career before they published their first novel. I think I did uh, Cam Spar, who I mentioned uh, originally, just when his novel had been accepted by an agent and submitted to publishers that had already published some short stories. And my theory was... 50 years from now, when you're a grandmaster, people can go back and listen to how it began. Aren't there people now who we wish we could have heard them at the beginning of their careers, what they thought about? So I'm, I'm trying to cover all the bases in terms of, uh, of whom I talk to, not uh, of all stages of career, all parts of science fiction, uh, you know, all uh, comic book writers. Uh, anyway, I, I'm trying to capture everything and give a true picture of where we happen to be now for the future yeah absolutely um all right so we're all out of time so scott do you have any just any other final thoughts or any other projects that you want to let people know about i am continuing with the podcast i am continuing to do my writing i I never know where i'm going with the writing because as i said i'm a pantser not a plotter i'm working on a story now and and navigating my way (laughs) to (laughs) what's supposed to be uh happening toward the end Uh, i think people have already heard all they want to hear from me they already know whether this is someone they would like to investigate further i i guess the probably the the only thing i want to end with is we live in an exciting time this is one of the greatest times for science fiction that 
we've ever had. I've been reading it since a kid. My first convention was 1970, so 51 years ago in a convention. And we are, uh, except for the fact those magazines on the newsstands are not there anymore, this is about as healthy and vibrant, as exciting as the field has ever been. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah, well, I think that's a great note to end on. So we've been speaking with Scott Edelman about his book, Tell Me Like You've Done Before. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Scott Edelman for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.